0: To uh, continue in our series called Foundations, and uh, we're going over four kind of big questions: What are our origins? Who is Jesus? Is the Bible true? Can we prove there's a God? And uh, so, when we start talking about things that are big questions like that, uh, I usually have to sit down and get a guest speaker to come. Uh, no, uh, so we have our second guest speaker, uh, Dr. Bruce Boloian. Would you come up, please? And uh, He's a professor at Azusa Pacific, and uh, we're excited to have him, and it's going to be the same thing as last week. He's going to talk for a while, and then if you have questions that you would like to ask, you can text them. There'll be a number on the screen. You can text them to that uh, number, and then I will uh, have them forwarded to me, and we'll, we'll ask them uh, those questions, and hopefully they won't be too hard. Okay, let me pray for you real quick. Lord God, I thank you for my brother who uh, loves you, and uh, I pray that as we talk about these questions, these questions, these, uh, Uh, deeper issues lord god that you would just open our minds open our hearts to hear your voice in jesus name amen well good morning
1: you know this uh not this summer the summer before i was at a methodist camp of all places uh and they are very mission oriented and uh they brought in a guest speaker to um he's iranian he actually found the Christian faith while he was at USC. And uh, he was here as a foreign student, and he became a Christian, and now he does this ministry all over the world with Muslims. And so I, I'm from the Middle East. I'm half um, Armenian, and my grandparents are full Armenian. My father is, and so I grew up in this culture. So um, it fascinated me. And so I went to hear his, his talks, And I just want to share one thing as a lead-in to what I want to share with you. He says, if you want to witness to a Muslim, never knock Muhammad. He says, just teach about Jesus. They will see the difference. So I thought we'd do that. Uh, If you want to follow with me, if you've got a Bible with you, go to the uh, Gospel of Mark, chapter 5. And um, let me share something with you before I read uh, that I share with the the students in my classes. They're in their late teens, early 20s. They're like the ages of some of you. Um, You're not at all interested in members of the opposite sex. Some of them are. Uh, And uh, one day I asked them, I said, uh, can you trust what a male says to the females? And the room got very silent, especially on the male's parts. And one girl finally says, no, not at all. (laughs) And I said, so how do you know what a guy is really like? Can you trust what he says? And they said, no. So I said, how do you know what they're like? They said, you only know someone's true character by what they do. And the Bible would have agreed with that student. So I thought we'd just read a story, and this is how the Bible does it. Fifty percent of the entire canon is storytelling, not because it's inferior literature, but precisely because it isn't. So let me show you how Jewish people teach truth, or at least one of the major ways. Here we go. Chapter 5, if you want, drop down to verse 21, and it says, When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. And pastor, I thought of you. We like big crowds, don't we? <clears throat> it's no fun to walk into your class and see two people. Okay? So there's a huge crowd. And then one of the synagogue rulers, this is one of the powerful people in the community, like the mayor or someone like that, named Jarius came up and seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet. And that's always nice when public officials do that. (laughs) And he pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying, please come. Put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. Now, uh, I drove all the way to Fresno yesterday. Got up, did what I could. My daughter, my wife, and I got in the car. And you say, "How far is Fresno from here?" Well, from where I live, it's about three and a half hours. Most people take about three hours and forty-five minutes, but I'm politer than most people, so I drive as fast as I can, so there's more room for others on the freeway. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and um, some of you are polite like I am. That's yeah, kind of part of our piety. Um, and you say, "Why don't you drive all the way to Fresno?" Because it was my mother's 89th birthday. And I went there to show respect to her. And, and to see her. And as I walked in the, their front room, uh, there was my dad. My dad's the same age. And he's just had surgery on his back. And he's not doing well. And, when I wa- and he's a tough guy. My dad can talk to Idaho without a phone. So <laughs> I walked in he almost started to cry, which is very unusual for him. And then he just looked at me because, see, I'm his son. And I remember one day he told me, you are life of my life, blood of my blood, bone of my bone. Where you are, I am in the world. You are my gift to the world. And that's not American talk. That's Middle Eastern talk. That's how the ancient Middle Eastern people saw their children. The Arabs said, when you're in a fight, save only two things, your jewelry and your children. So how important to a synagogue official is it that Jesus heals his daughter? Very. So watch what happens. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. And she suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. And when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. Now she would have never gone up to Jesus and asked him to lay hands on her and heal her, because she had this issue of blood. She was in a continual period. and Therefore, she was unclean and no rabbi could touch her. And so she's lost. There's nothing anybody can do. So she sneaks behind him and says, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. But she sneaks behind him because if anybody sees her touch him, then she'll be outed. and She'll be a social outcast. Immediately her bleeding stopped. and She felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. And then it begins. At once, Jesus recognized that power had gone out of him. And he turned around in the crowd and he said, Who touched my clothes? You see, po- you see people crowding against you, his disciples answered. And yet you ask, Who touched me? By the way, uh, in the Gospel of Luke, this is Peter who says this. And he's going, everybody's touching you! (laughs) But Jesus, looking around to see who had done it, and he kept looking around, and then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear. And she told him the whole truth and he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Now, the more you read these stories, the more you begin to realize Jesus of Nazareth is not very nice. Had he been nice, he would have gone on his way. Or had he been nice, he would have turned, caught her eye, and winked at her, and walked on. But he's not nice. And by the way, the rumors are, neither is God. We create a nice God, but if God is like Jesus, and that's what the rumors are. If Jesus is God in the flesh, Jesus isn't nice. How does she come before him? What's the class the, the, the verse thing say here? She came trembling. Do you think she felt very good at that point? Do you think she had warm fuzzies in her heart? Oh Jesus, talk to me, ask you to come forward. <laughs> I love Jesus. She probably didn't feel a lot of love at that point. She felt just raw fear. My question to you is, why did he do that? And was he mad? How do we know? He said to her, daughter, what's that mean? She's probably older than him, why did he call her daughter? Was he mad? Uh -uh. and then he gives her God's phone number because see she's going to have problems again and she's going to need to know how to get to the God of the universe the God who's really there not the nice God we make up the real God she's going to need to know how to get to him and it's going to take risk it's going to take faith again By the way, you can take that word faith, run through all the gospel stories, lift it out of your Bibles, scratch it out, and write over the top of it a four-letter word, R-I-S-K. And all the stories will make more sense. He demanded that she come out. She had to face what she had done. And of course, you realize once he did that, for seven days now, he can't preach in a synagogue. Why do you do that? She's a loser. Just let her get her healing and go on. But instead, he thought she needed to know how this all took place. So he described it to her. He says, It's your faith that saved you. You took that risk to come near God. So he says, Go in peace. Go in shalom. Go in communion with God. You're okay, sweetheart and be freed from your suffering. And of course, while he was speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler, and they said, your daughter's dead. They said, why bother the teacher anymore? And ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. Because see, this taking time to help this loser woman who has no money, he's now lost the opportunity to heal the daughter of the person who had power. Then he says, only believe. And he did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and loudly wailing, and he went in and said, said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child's not dead, but asleep. And look at your text. See what it says? What do they do? They laughed at him. You say, why were they wailing and make the, making the commotion? Uh, I've sometimes gone to, on places, and Pastor could give you a lot more stories than mine where when you come upon someone who's lost someone that close, they can't cry, they're in shock. They can't grieve, they're just numb, they're dead inside. They're just... So the old people of ancient times, they knew this. So as good neighbors, you would come and you would wail for your neighbors so the grief process can start and it starts to flow. And so they're good neighbors, they're there, they know they've lost a child. So as good neighbors, they're crying and wailing in behalf of the family, who's probably at this point numb. And Jesus comes along and says she isn't dead, she's asleep. What's he implying? He's implying she's in a coma. Isn't that interesting? Is she dead? Yeah, she's dead in a door now. She's dead. So, did Jesus lie? Say, well, no, Jesus can't lie. We'll take you outside, Pastor. (laughs) It sure seems like it, though, doesn't it? Well, they laughed at him. And he put them all out, and he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him, the three. And then in went, went in where the child was, so now you have mother, father, Jesus, the child and three disciples. There's seven in this little room. And he took her by the hand, which means he's again defiled ritually in that community and culture. He could have just stood over her, but he decided to take her by the hand. just like he notice how he goes and touches lepers. He doesn't have to, but he chooses to. That's like giving a kiss to someone with AIDS. And he took her by the hand and he said to her, Talitha kum, which means little child, little girl, little one. Not senora, senorita, little one. Precious little one, which that name beautifully implies. He says, Little one, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. And he gave strict orders to let no one know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Okay, a couple questions for you. I know you can ask me questions, so I'm going to ask you some, okay? Number one... Why did he heal the sick woman before he healed the important man's daughter? Yeah, when maybe he doesn't know how to do good PR. (laughs) Why does he show the fact that he's been touched by her, which defiles him? And why does he go out of his way to touch the dead girl? What's he doing? Let me ask you another question, and maybe the toughest one. Why does he tell him to keep quiet after he did this? I mean, you know, if Pastor wrote, raised a girl from the dead, wouldn't you want to call Channel 7, four, two, and maybe 11? Do you know what I mean? And, uh, go get them all. <laughs> You know, and then you know, make sure he's got his good clothes on, you know, and they go, okay, pastor, now let's do the before and after, okay, let's, let's see to the parents, let's see they make sure the lighting's right, and, and what's he tell everybody? Keep your mouth shut, he says, strictly, he says. No PR skills, seemingly, huh? Now think about it, if you're 12 years old, You're just about to enter puberty. You think you'd ever get a date if you were the dead girl? (laughs) You say, is that why he did it? I don't know. (laughs) But maybe a little girl is more important to him than his image. And maybe there's been some (laughs) miracles done all over this earth that don't get a lot of press. And God doesn't want it. Because he's a little more concerned about the person than his image because here's another idea maybe God has a pretty strong self-image and maybe Jesus is the exact exact replica of who the God of the universe is he's not nice he'll push you and make you uncomfortable because it's better for you just like a good mother would make you uncomfortable to do something or a good dad but he's loving, just not nice. He's often very, very tough on his disciples and very confrontational with those who lie. I like the last thing here. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this. And he told them to give her what? Something to what? This is so Middle Eastern. My students and I went to a Jewish synagogue a few years back, and uh, we asked for an audience at a time with the rabbi who graciously gave it to this wonderful man, brilliant man. And our students were so fascinated with the Jewish service, they had t- question after question after question they asked, and he was answering them and on down the line. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, an elderly Jewish lady appeared at the back of the church, came up to where we were, to, you know, talking with the rabbi and she says enough enough rabbi you rabbis you always talk too much we have food in the other room let the children come with me and he goes well they have some work he says says, it's their quiet no quiet rabbi (laughs) and he was a smart and intelligent man so he kept quiet (laughs) she goes come children i will feed you so jewish and when you go to my, my Armenian grandparents' home, you you know, Mikasa Sukasa, and that means, when you come, my house is your house, and in the Middle East, that means you feed them." And he's making sure she's taken care of, very practically taken care of, not just spiritually. He didn't make them all sit down and read Bible verses. All right, should we ask questions or answer questions? Absolutely. Have a seat. This was amazing.
0: Yeah. Do I need one of these? No. Okay. I, I would imagine that everybody was just glued to the Word and forgot that you could ask questions, so I'm going to start out with one. Uh, well, just, just so you know... Um, I went and interviewed all four professors before they did this. And um, it was really awesome uh, because, first of all, you just, I don't know, I get a little intimidated by professors, so I just sat in my chair. And maybe it was from when I was a kid and was constantly in the principal's office. But it was so amazing to see um, when we'd be talking about, okay, here are the questions we're going to be asking about Jesus and about God and about the scripture. Uh, the topic always seemed to just come down to just practical faith. And that was certainly the case with Dr. Balowian. And I, I'm asking every professor this, you know, you're around books all day. You're around students, you're teaching them uh, doctrine. You're teaching them um, uh, how to think deeply. H- how do you keep your faith in that uh, um, uh, kind of environment fresh and real and personal i mean obviously uh you gave us a demonstration this morning but um, uh, how do you do that
1: uh, i've learned over the years if you just read the text for as a scholar you, you go dry so as silly as this sounds i do devotions i read through the bible at a certain you know
0: that's crazy <laughs> oh sorry go ahead
1: you know, And then I also, uh, someone called me uh, Wednesday night, a friend of mine I went to college with, and he's, and we were talking, and um, he lives right around here. So uh, we were talking, and he, he started asking me about some things I was doing, and he said, uh, I hear you spoke in our area. You know? And I said, yeah, I'm actually going to be in your area again in this coming Sunday. And he says, why do you do that? I says, actually, I need to do that more than they need to hear me. I need to be where the church is. I need to be where people are. I, I was at the Salvation Army last night. And um, doing what doing what we're supposed to be saying and talking, teaching is, is actually vital for my spiritual life. I have to be involved. In fact, one time I went and did something at Youth for Christ and I told them, thank you for asking me. Uh, I needed to come here. And they said, oh, you're so humble. I says, no, I'm not. Not if you really know me i said i really meant that i i i need to speak to you more than you need to hear me i've got to serve or i die inside and so whether it's uh like what you guys did or it's the, the service to me spiritually is is absolutely is essential for my spiritual life
0: awesome and what classes do you teach at azusa
1: um, i'm an old testamenter by trade and then uh i was uh in the habit of trying to feed my children when I first (laughs) went to APU and the only class they had was the life and teachings of Jesus which is Matthew Mark and Luke I took it uh, because it was a job and uh, never gave it back so I teach the life of Christ and then I teach a a smattering of different Old Testament classes
0: Someone wrote, I never thought God could be anything but nice and loving. Thank you for that insight. Can you can you talk a little bit more about that? Because um, you know, one of my spiritual gifts is encouragement. I tend to look on the nice, loving side of God more, more than anything else. Can you talk about that idea that maybe uh, he's not so nice? Maybe kind of a little more in depth. Talk about that. Well, I'm grading
1: papers right now. Uh, uh. And I'll be handing them back probably in about... 10 days or so, and uh, one student, I'm dropping their grade at an entire letter grade because of grammar and how they put stuff together. And you say, why are you doing that? Well, because they're freshmen. They're gonna have to write for the next four years. And if I don't do that, they're not gonna think I'm very nice. But if I don't do that, then they're not going to do well in the future. Mm-hmm. So I sometimes I'll stop and I'll take apart their whole paragraph and I'll say, see what you've done here. Here's a better way to do it. Here's how you write better. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, or you'll, they, they'll send me stuff. That they can turn it in early. And I'll just, in fact, I said in class one time, I said, uh, if you want some proofreading before you turn your paper in, I said, don't expect me to say nice things. I don't have time to. All I'm going to tell you is what's wrong. And if your ego can't handle that don't turn anything in and they kind of look at me laughed do you mean but sometimes the best way to help someone is what would appear to be unnice and Christ is a beautiful example of that and I have noticed that is how God has treated me that sometimes what I think is extremely harsh uh, has in later reflection become quite a blessing as some of the, the resentment I had towards my parents for all the spankings I got, which were multitudinous because I was a really hard-to-deal-with child. Uh, I, I met the principal a lot, of times. <laughs> we should talk, okay? We sure. should. <laughs> yeah. sure. Probably sure. not a good thing. know. Anyway. <laughs> but I, I, there, is, there is that there, and sometimes we present this, uh, Jesus is over nice, and then when they get in real life and they begin to see God's dealing with them, they're shocked. <coughs> And it's better to go into scripture and watch what he's doing. And then sometimes when
0: you see what he's doing in scripture, you can understand what you're doing or what he's doing right now in life. It's mm. awesome. Um, I don't know if you can answer this question. Uh, do you know why he chose to be a carpenter? Why not a fisherman? I have my own thoughts on that, but because I hate <laughs> fishing. But anyway, go. Um,
1: I know for sure, it'd be speculation otherwise, but for sure... I think what we could go to the bank with is if you go to Genesis chapter 2, I think it's 17. Uh, Adam was tending the garden before there was sin in chapter 3. God intended us to work with our hands. It's a good thing. Work is all work is honorable. And this is so deep in Jewish thinking that to be a, a, a Pharisee, you had to have a task with your hands or You could not be a Pharisee. You had to have a trade. So Paul was a tip maker. And so Jewish thinking is to always honor and look up to and admire blue collar work. And of course all the disciples were blue collar workers. So I think his being a carpenter is picking up that. And uh, when I show this to my students I say how many of you are waitresses or waiters? And quite a few of them raised their hands. Uh. And I said, uh, how are you treated by Christians? And then the room gets pretty quiet. <coughs> sometimes they're not tipped very well by Christians. Uh, and sometimes there's some real horror stories. But I said, if you want to be really Christian, treat your server extremely well because she's doing great things according to the Bible. Mm-hmm. And what you were doing up here, loading a, a trash you know, dump, You say, well, that's not very spiritual. I think you know it was spiritual. To work with your hands is honorable. And so uh, I I think anybody who works with a hand should be be looked up with self-esteem. And that's, I think, why he he specifically is called a carpenter. That's a blue-collar trade.
0: Very cool. Um, This is a great question here. Do you have tips on how to teach the Scripture to children or teens that are not accepting of Scripture? You know, they're still trying to figure out uh is it really truth is it really um do you have any tips on kind of how to
1: you know i used to work in youth for christ campus life um i did it for a a lot of years and i was uh they weren't sure i was going to make it (laughs) so they gave me all the clubs they didn't think we're going to make it (laughs) so I, i worked in parts of fresno county that had little or no churches and no youth groups and stuff. So, when I would run a typical meeting of 30 kids, maybe there was one or no Christians in the room. Mm-hmm. So, I got quite educated in talking to people who weren't really churchgoers or open to the Bible. They certainly didn't regard it as an authority. Uh, and I basically gave a good two or three hundred useless talks. Uh, and then one day I went, I was in an all black high school. I don't know if you can tell in the sliding, but I'm not black. Uh, <laughs> they figured it out too. Uh, and uh, we would give talks. within about 30 seconds, the room was, start, you know, was starting to foment, and pretty soon chaos would just erupt, because they weren't Christians. And, and so we would take turns giving the Christian talk, because it was just very painful to do it. And when it was my turn, one day I turned to my coworker, I said, "I'm going to go four and a half minutes." He goes, "Why?" do you have sin in your life? Are you purging? (laughs) I said, well, can I try it? He goes, all right, all right. You know, knowing what will probably a riot or something. So we did have one year, one one week. But uh, so um, instead of giving the little Christian gospel bullets kind of thing and Christian principle thing, I told a story about Jesus. And they absolutely listened. Even the guy that reached over and grabbed the girl's hind end, that was I could see him doing that. Uh, we saw his reaction card and he had heard the story and was thinking and then it slowly dawned on me I've stumbled on something and then a couple weeks later I had to speak to 300 junior high kids who weren't Christians and they had driven the speaker the month before me off the stage. So my colleague came to me and says, I can't get anybody else. You're my office mate. If you're really my friend, you'll do it. (laughs) So, and the pay was near zero. So, you know, just go get crucified. So uh, I told a story from the Bible and they listened. And then I realized we by nature think in terms of movies or story, namely our own story. When you got up this morning, you started November 7th version of your story storytelling is natural to your perception of reality. So the Bible tells stories not because it's an a inferior book, but because it wishes to connect with your, one of the basic ways you understand reality. And so when you tell the stories, and they're so carefully done in Scripture, the stories are meant to help you see things in life, and then the Bible wants you to make that story your story. And you'd be surprised how quick teenagers are. They get it. Hmm. Um, How do you know the story of David and Goliath? Does the narrator tell you what it means? No. So when you tell a story, you don't have to do a lot of preaching. And if you do, you're kind of unbiblical. Let the story carry its own weight. They, will, the story will stick in their mind, just like uh, when you tell an illustration, or I do. You will remember the illustration a lot longer than than our points.